again, dear listener, and thank you for joining us here at Republic Broadcasting Network. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy, your host for the next one hour, and you are listening to Datum Line. In our last Datum Line broadcast entitled Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 10, we began an investigation of another myth which many Federal Reserve critics rely upon in their quest for a new credit system operated by Congress instead of the Federal Reserve. This myth assumes the inherent sovereign power of Congress to emit bills of credit in defiance of the Constitution and Scripture. It was toward the end of that message that we called upon George Bancroft for a proper understanding of the Constitution, pursuant to the legislative intent of its framers. His life's work the ten-volume history of the United States of America from the discovery of the continent, exemplified his love for the architects of our republic. But it's his last book, A Plea for the Constitution, published in 1886, that will be the focus of our attention today. Born in 1800, Bancroft was 84 years old when the United States Supreme Court summarily redefined the powers of Congress in Juilliard versus Greenman, a contest lumped together with several others to become collectively known as the legal tender cases. These decisions would serve to magnify the status of credit instruments at the expense of our lawful money, which would be confiscated with the credit for money swap perpetrated between 1914 and 1964. It was this Juilliard decision that ignored over 100 years of legislative history and judicial interpretation to set aside the Constitution and pave the way for a central bank only 30 years later. Bancroft's book was a concise rebuttal to the historical inaccuracies uttered by a court comprising the same nine judges who previously denied congressional sovereignty and then reversed themselves in Juilliard versus Greenman by a vote of eight Republican to one Democrat. Thus, a Republican Supreme Court provided legal cover for Abraham Lincoln's Republican administration, the first to emit bills of credit in direct violation of the United States Constitution. Now, to those who favor fiat money, a Supreme Court decision may suffice to overthrow our system of government and free enterprise. While outwardly praising that document, they're joined by some gold and silver advocates who likewise prefer a living constitution that can be bent and twisted to accommodate the sinful spirit of changing times. While Article 1, Section 10 says that no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender and payment of debts, hard money advocates often read this to mean gold and silver certificates. Rather than try to understand why our founding fathers were so rigid, they may say, well, that was then and this is now. Of course, monetary reformers could work for a constitutional convention to authorize gold and silver certificates and even fiat money as advocated by populists. But why bother to amend the Constitution that's so easily ignored? Regarding the two-party political charade of his day, Alabama Governor George Wallace said, there's not a dime's worth of difference between them. When the dust has finally settled, will we find a dime's worth of difference between opposing monetary reformers 
who believe many of the same myths and sing praises to the same Constitution, but with no intention of returning to its precepts. Today's message, Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 11. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy, and you are listening to Data Mind. Once again, and thank you for joining us during this segment of Datum Line, our message today, Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 11. You know, as some of you can probably tell, I've grown weary of the nonsense circulating in monetary reform circles that is supposed to pass for intellectual content. When reformers speak of gold-backed money, for example, they admit their inability to distinguish between money or credit, those credit instruments simply being a promise to pay the money. And they should stop sowing these seeds of confusion among their followers, no matter which side of the argument they favor. If leadership is comfortable talking in circles, how can people be expected to follow them in a straight line? And how can an unlawful act, such as the creation of money out of nothing, be converted into a national blessing? by giving Congress the exclusive monopoly to commit this grievous sin? Would believers in such folly admit to an equally blessed state of affairs if Congress were to assume the sole authority to pollute our land, air, and water, or to rape, maim, and butcher members of our society according to statutes that Congress alone can write and revise at will? Now, as to the United States Supreme Court, some folks feel uncomfortable challenging the opinions of so august a body of fallible and sinful flesh. But constitutional violations can only endure while this court legitimizes them on behalf of an executive, legislative, and judicial trinity. Judicial misinterpretation is a pernicious act of complicity. And the reason high public office attracted the likes of Lenin, Stalin, and Chairman Mao Zedong around the world is that their tyrannical plans were clothed with the white robes of legitimacy to insulate them from fear of reprisal. Legalized tyranny is as old as the sun. King David had written in the Psalms, at Psalm 94 and verse 20, Shall the throne of iniquity have fellowship with thee? thee being the Lord, which frameth mischief by a law. That may seem a little obscure, so let's read that with a little added text for understanding. Shall the throne of iniquity have fellowship with thee, O Lord, which evil rulers frameth or devise and fabricate mischief by a law? In other words, those people who get into public office can write a law that makes sin legal. Isn't that why so many people want to get into public office these days? They want to play God. Well, just in case your exposure to this subject has been from 
an official or a politically correct perspective, which also happens to be the populist point of view, by the, by the way. Let's now return to a plea for the Constitution, written by George Bancroft, published in 1886. Now, he died at age 91, so he died in 1891, but he was born in 1800, a very well-known figure in his day. And I think out of deference to Mr. Bancroft, we should read his entire introduction to his book. Now, it's only four pages long, and it's a small book. His first sentence, <clears throat> finding this at page one, good money must have an intrinsic value. The United States of America cannot make its shadow legal tender for debts payable in money without ultimately bringing upon their foreign commerce and their home industry a catastrophe, which will be the more overwhelming the longer the day of wrath puts off its coming. Our federal constitution was designed to end forever the emission of bills of credit as legal tender in payment of debts, alike by the individual states and the United States, and it will have that effect if it is rightly interpreted and firmly enforced. The Supreme Court of the United States was endowed by our fathers with a peculiar tenure of office, he says, and high powers of jurisdiction, that it might be able to keep watch over the life and integrity of the Constitution. On the 3rd of March, 1884, without having listened to any public argument on the case, which was made the occasion of its utterance, it pronounced before a crowd of listeners an opinion in these words, quote, The power to make the notes of the government a legal tender in payment of private debts, being one of the powers belonging to sovereignty in other civilized nations. What difference does that make? And not expressly withheld from Congress by the Constitution, well, it didn't have to be because they weren't expressly granted the power, we are irresistibly impelled to the conclusion that the impressing upon the Treasury notes of the United States the quality of being a legal tender in payment of private debts is an appropriate means conducive and plainly adapted to the execution of the undoubted powers of Congress, end quote. This is taken from 110, United States Reports, at page 450. This is the Juliet versus Greenman decision of 1884. The opinion thus confidently expressed, says Bancroft, if it should be accepted as law, would be a death blow to the Constitution. Well, it was accepted, and it was a death blow to the Constitution. In defiance of which it not only gives a sanction to irredeemable paper money, but clothes the government with powers that have no defined limit in its relations to the people. Now, I should stop here for just a moment and point out that it was Edwin Vieira in Pieces of Eight who pointed out that the Juliet versus Greenman case did not actually give sanction to irredeemable paper. It gave sanction to United States notes that were redeemable. However, over time, the public and the courts have conferred upon that Juliet decision the power, if you will, of Congress to utter or issue irredeemable notes, even though the Juliet case did not say that. This is one of the ways that we misinterpret Supreme Court decisions, and lawyers are very good at doing that. Now, he goes on to say, quote, this is now Bancroft, 
of the nine, nine judges, of the nine who composed the court, Stephen J. Field alone gave a dissenting opinion. Now, as I pointed out in the previous broadcast, Stephen J. Field just happened to be the only Democrat on a predominantly Republican Supreme Court bench. You remember that it was Justice Waite, Republican, Miller, Republican, Bradley, Republican, Harlan from Kentucky, Republican, Woods, Republican, Matthews, Republican, Gray, Republican, Blatchford, Republican, eight to one was that decision. Field, Democrat. And the administration that they were covering for, Abraham Lincoln, Republican, nominated at the Chicago Republican Convention in May of 1860. Okay, Now you can get the composition of the court and their political affiliation from Black's Law Dictionary, 5th edition at page 1506. It's one of the appendices. Okay. Anyway, Field alone gave a dissenting opinion. But there stood at his side invincible vouchers for the rightness of his dissent. James Wilson, Oliver Ellsworth, and William Paterson. Who are they? Well, all three of those of whom the president of the convention, that be George Washington, which formed our Constitution, selected from among its framers to be its earliest judicial interpreters. In other words, Wilson, Ellsworth, and Paterson were judges on the United States Supreme Court bench. They were not only delegates to the Constitution, or the Constitutional Convention, but they were Supreme Court justices who also upheld the position that Congress was not sovereign okay, and did not have inherent powers. And with them, says Bancroft, are to be counted a cloud of witnesses, among whom are the master builders of the Constitution, Roger Sherman, he was the one who was responsible for Article One, Section 10, no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin, a tender and payment of debts, George Washington, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, James Madison, and Alexander Hamilton. The language of the court, this is the Juilliard Court now, is of such import to all American industry and intercourse, from the most humble to the highest, and is moreover so subversive of a republic composed of states in union, and threatens such injury to the honor and hope of republicanism throughout the world, that I have thought it right to bestow upon it many of the few hours that may remain to me for labor. And he died, as I said, in 1891, at 91 years of age. The decision of the question depends upon facts which are beyond the reach of change and which for their establishment require only the strict application of the rules of evidence to historical investigation. When questions of science arise, I shall cite only men that command the confidence of the civilized world, and I shall call the immortal framers of the Constitution themselves as my witnesses to prove that it was their deliberate, unalterable purpose to withhold from the federal government the power to emit the promise of money as a legal tender for debt in money, and that they did belong beyond dispute withhold the power by very large and most determined majorities. To set the subject in the clearest light, it will be proper to trace the history of American bills of credit until they were abolished by Massachusetts and Connecticut, to revive the memory of the great struggle for their suppression by the separate colonies or states to the end of 1786, and to ascertain 
what decision on paper money was made by the Constitutional Convention and accepted one by one by every state. It will then be the time to examine the new interpretation of the Constitution by the present court, Juliet versus Greenland, and ask after the defenses of the people against the revolution with which they are threatened by that court. This is Datum Line, and I'm Bruce J. McCarthy. message is entitled Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 11. And we had just finished reading the introduction to a plea for the Constitution, originally written by George Bancroft back in 1886, as published by Harper. Mine is a 1982 Spencer Judd reprint of that book. It's wonderful that there are people out there who have the perspicacity to know what ought to be reprinted. Having finished that introduction, I would like to give you just a summation from George Bancroft's chapters as to what each chapter would be about. Now, those of you who are regular listeners to Datamine know that we have covered much of this in previous broadcasts quite some time ago. Part one, which would be chapter one of five parts or five chapters, according to George Bancroft, his little summation at the top of the page for part one says what the chapter is about. And here's what it is. From the first issue of bills of public credit in the American colonies to their abolition, get that? Their abolition by Connecticut from 1690 to 1755 and 56. See, those notes that people praise oftentimes in popular circles where they talk about the unrivaled prosperity that occurred in Massachusetts because of the notes they issued in 1690 or 92 or thereabouts. In fact, they reissued notes over and over. Uh, they, they, there was not unrivaled prosperity, I'm sorry. Uh, you follow the history of those. Those notes lasted for about 50 years, and uh, prosperity uh, they did not bring. Uh, there may have been some prosperity uh, right up front in the first couple of years, but they brought doom and gloom. Anyway, I'll take a look at uh, Part 2 or Chapter 2, and again, Bancroft's summary. This is from page 21. Quote, Paper money in America from the beginnings of the Seven Years' War to the Constitutional Convention of the United States from 1755 and 56 to May of 1787, and we covered that chapter as well in a previous broadcast. Here's the chapter that many people seem to ignore or maybe just simply never never knew. This is part three, or chapter three, found at page 37. The summation by Bancroft, the Federal Convention, this being the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, 1787, shuts and bars the doors against paper money from 14th May to 17th September, 1787. And again, I'll say we covered that in the previous uh, message. Part 4, or Chapter 4, deals with, according to Bancroft, the Constitution.
constitution in the house of its guardians. Who were the guardians? The United States Supreme Court. And in our previous broadcast last week, we got into this chapter and we were pointing out the various court decisions and Supreme Court justices who uttered their decisions on behalf of the Constitution, limiting the powers of Congress and showing that Congress was not sovereign, that Congress did not have inherent powers, that all powers came from the Constitution, that the Constitution was authored by we the people, and that we could only delegate to Congress those powers that we had. And as I have pointed out, God never gave us the power to steal. You will not find that in the Bible. Okay, So if we don't have the power to steal, nor does Congress, well, what does stealing have to do with bills of credit? Well, the purpose of bills of credit, if they're honest ones, is to get what you produce now and pay you later. If they're dishonest ones, the purpose of legal tender bills of credit is to get what you produce and pay you never. That's the system that has been enshrined to a fixture in America. And the Juliet versus Greenman decision helped to pave the way for that and the Federal Reserve System. Well, we'll now turn to page uh, 60 of Bancroft's book, and we're going to pick up with the next Supreme Court Chief Justice, Salmon P. Chase, who follows Roger B. Taney. Now, Roger B. Taney was the successor to Justice Marshall. Now, all of these justices prior to Salmon P. Chase have upheld the doctrine that Congress or the federal government does not have inherent sovereign powers, that it is a government which was established by a constitution which delegates specific powers, and if the power isn't there, they don't have it. So let's go on here at page 60. Quote, the next Chief Justice, Salmon P. Chase, in the December term, 1869, delivered this opinion of the court. Quote, the Constitution is the fundamental law of the United States. By it, the people have created a government, defined its powers, prescribed their limits, distributed them among the different departments, and directed, in general, the manner of their exercise. No department of the government has any other powers than those thus delegated to it by the people. All the legislative power granted by the Constitution belongs to Congress, but it has no legislative power which is not thus granted. And the same observation is equally true in its application to the executive and judicial powers granted respectively to the president and the courts. All these powers differ in kind, but not in source or in limitation. They all arise from the Constitution and are limited by its terms. End quote. 8 Wallace, page 611. Here's our music. This is our halftime break. You're listening to Data Line, and I'm Bruce G. McCarthy. Listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Welcome back to this segment of Datum Line uh, Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 11. 
We're in George Bancroft's book, A Plea for the Constitution, originally written back in 1886 or published in 1886 by Harper's. And it was his rebuttal, he being the uh, George Bancroft, a very well-known historian of his day. It was histor- his historical rebuttal, excuse me, to the Juliet versus Greenman decision, which was fraught with historical errors. And uh, we had mentioned uh, Salmon P. Chase, who had uh, become the next chief justice of the United States Supreme Court following Roger B. Taney, and Taney had followed uh, Chief Justice Marshall. And all of these court justices, all the way back to uh, the original uh, Supreme Court, which was uh, composed of uh, appointees by President George Washington, had all upheld the doctrine that the Constitution was a document. I'm talking about the United States Constitution, not a state constitution, but the United States Constitution is a document of enumerated and limited powers. If the power is not delegated to a branch of government, that branch of government does not have it. And that was for over 100 years, the judicial interpretation by the Supreme Court, and it was the legislative history of Congress that was manifest in accordance with the keeping of that restriction or disability, if you will. Now, on page 61 in Mancroft's book, we're going to pick up with the death of Salmon P. Chase, and we're going to see if the court can find anybody to replace him. Quote, since the death of Chase, that'd be Salmon Portland Chase, the court has had occasion to express once more its opinion on this subject. What subject? The subject of sovereign power. This is brought up by the fact that we have so many populists who believe that Congress has sovereign power, exclusive power, the authority, if you will, to emit bills of credit, create what they call paper money, because there's no such thing as paper money. Paper's never been used as money in history. It's too heavy to be used as money. My argument is how much paper would it take to buy a new SUV? Okay, you go figure that one out. Anyway, in the October term of 1882, when it was, what what was, when the Supreme Court was, composed identically, man for man, of the very same nine men that constitute it now. When's now? 1884, in the Juliet versus Greenman decision that we've been talking about. It, the Supreme Court, referred to the opinion of Marshall, who's he? Chief Justice, who preceded Chase and preceded Taney, which I have cited and adopted it, so the U.S. Supreme Court, that was composed of the same justices as in Juliet, adopted it without reserve as its own. Well, what was that decision? For itself, it added concisely and excellently well, quote, and this is what they said, the government of the United States is one of delegated, limited, and enumerated powers. Therefore, Every valid act of Congress must find in the Constitution some warrant for its passage, end quote. This taken from 106 United States Report, page 635-636. Is now Bancroft. The opinion of the court of March 3, 1884, this is Juilliard, in the case of Juilliard versus Greenman, is therefore in flagrant antagonism to the Constitution of the United States and to the repeated, continuous, and unanimously given and justly respected interpretations of the Constitution by the Court itself under a succession of chiefs 
without a break. I'll turn to page 62. We'll pick up with this statement. On the death of Chase, Salmon P. Chase, it is of my knowledge that the president, President Grant, desired to place upon the bench as his successor a member of his cabinet, Hamilton Fish, in whom he is known to have reposed the greatest trust. That statesman has the character of fidelity to his convictions of constitutional truth, and his friends know well that on the question which is now under consideration, the words which follow have ever formed his opinion. Quote, the Constitution of the United States gives to the general government the powers of a sovereign nation in its condition as one among the family of nations. But then, only in its dealings and relations with foreign governments. In its internal relations and in its dealings with the several states of the Union and with its own citizens, the government of the United States is one of delegated and enumerated powers, forbidden the exercise of very many, and among them of some of the most important and frequently exercised powers of sovereignty. In their internal relations, albeit supreme within its prescribed sphere of action, the government of the United States is far very far removed from the powers of a sovereign state. The legal tender legislation of Congress is of purely internal and domestic force and operation. It ceases to be operative precisely when the sovereign powers of the government begin and can rightfully invoke no sanction or authority from those powers of sovereignty. Wow. Further, says uh, Bancroft, while the seat of the Chief Justice of the United States remained vacant, Roscoe Conkling of New York was requested and urged, though in vain by President Grant, to accept this position. Okay, Roscoe Conkling, his opinion on the point of constitutional law, which is now under discussion, was pronounced in public before he was first designated for the high office of Chief Justice and has never changed. It runs thus, quote, The Constitution of the United States is an instrument of delegated and enumerated powers, and Congress has no powers except those which the Constitution confers. In looking for a power in the Constitution of a state, the question usually is, has it been taken away or forbidden? But in looking at the federal Constitution, the question is, has the power been given? If it is not there, there is an end of the matter. That's taken from the Congressional Globe at Part 1, Second Session. That'd be the 37th Session of Congress, 1861 to 1862 at page 635. Bancroft goes on. It is well known to the winter residents of Washington, that'd be uh, on the Potomac there, that in the early part of 1882, the executive of that day desired to place on the Supreme Bench George F. Edmonds, then and now a senator from Vermont. And his wish, supported by the very strong and very general concurrence of opinion, was defeated only by the refusal of the senator himself. But on the question which we are discussing, this is interesting, that George Bancroft not only took the various Supreme Court decisions of the past for about a 100 years and showed they were consistently showing that 
Congress didn't have this supreme power that Mr. Thorne, Mr. Warner, and others of the populist persuasion say that they have. But he even takes a look at the Supreme Court justices who were to be appointed, who refused, and what their position was as judges, and shows that they were consistent as well. And had they been appointed, they would have ruled uh, thusly. Anyway, but on the question which we are discussing, he has given the opinion, or this opinion, which for terseness and clearness and correctness need not be excelled. Quote, the government of the United States has no power of inherent sovereignty, but only such sovereign powers as were delegated to it by a written constitution, which carefully and expressly declared that all powers not delegated by that instrument were reserved to the states and the people. The power to create a legal paper currency, if it exists at all, must exist by force of a delegation and not by force of inherent sovereignty, end quote. That from 110 United States Report, page 435. And I'm on page 65 of Bancroft's book. Well, we're going to end here uh, with Bancroft. I hope that he has made the point relatively clear. Uh, at least he has for me. I'm going to go to page 80, and I'm only going to pick up the last two paragraphs of his closing statement in his last chapter as to why he wrote this book. He says, quote, page 80, I have written because I am persuaded that a firm and right establishment of the true relations of money to labor cannot be secure in a republic except by cultivating the mind of its people and diffusing a knowledge of the truth through all its members. The honest illusions of many men must be dispelled and their minds ransomed from error. We'll discern the truth. Paper money is a corruption of the blood. It is the dry rot which silently and unseen consumes the beams and joists which support the house and its floors. I am pleading the cause of industry, the cause of labor, the cause of the poor, and yet as I do not believe that the interests of the various classes of society necessarily clash with each other, I may hope that I am pleading for the welfare of society, for the rights and duties of all who in the many diversities of honorable occupation contribute to the completeness of a nation. What I have written is the fruit of many hours, employed in examining the laws of our period of colonial life, as well as in the study of our own Constitution and of the corresponding history and affairs of many lands. I may utter these last words of admonition as assurances of that love of country, of liberty, and of truth that has been the rule of my life and still glows in a heart which must so soon cease to be. He died five years later at age 91. There was a patriot. So, on this subject of federal, specifically congressional sovereignty, as delivered in the Juilliard Opinion, by Justice Gray on behalf of the eight Republicans in majority against Justice Field, the one Democrat, we find some points of particular interest 
in Pieces of Eight, Volume One by Edwin Vieira, published in 2002. It's a fantastic set of books. <laughs> We're at page 658 and 659. I'm going to read a few excerpts. These are the words of Edwin Vieira. Uh, quote, A further example of Juilliard's shoddy reasoning in Justice Gray's reliance on, quote, the usage of sovereign governments, end quote, as a prop for his reaffirmation of Knox, that be the Knox versus Lee case which preceded Juliet versus Greenman. The powers of impressing upon government bills and notes, or notes, the quality of being a legal tender for the payment of private debts, was a power universally understood to belong to sovereignty, said Gray, in Europe and America at the time of the framing and adoption of the Constitution, end quote. Well, if, uh, he was wrong on both cases. Gray claimed, Of course, were this true as a matter of fact, it would be relevant as a matter of law only if the Constitution delegated to Congress those monetary powers, quote-unquote, universally understood to belong to sovereignty, with no limitation or qualification expressed or implied. If, on the other hand, says Fiera, the Constitution expresses or implies any denial or circumscription of the powers the court assumed were, quote-unquote, universally understood to belong to sovereignty, end quote, that supposedly universal understanding would be beside the point, and the court's duty would involve not pondering what other countries' laws generally permit, but what the Constitution specifically authorizes Congress to do. Continuing, quote, Moreover, Gray did not support with any documentation his assumption of what was supposedly universally understood regarding the monetary powers of sovereign governments in the late 1700s. Now, it's funny, when you go before the court and you start making statements, somebody's going to demand that you come up with your offer of proof. And as pointed out here, Gray did not support with any documentation his assumption of what was universally understood regarding the monetary powers of sovereign governments in the late 1700s. It was, by the way, pointed out by Butler, I believe he was a delegate to the Constitutional Convention from Georgia, that in no country in Europe at the time that the Constitution was ratified, or being framed, I should say, in no country in Europe was so-called paper, or bills of credit, where they made legal tender. Not one. Page 659, quote, going on about, quote, unquote, sovereign monetary powers, Justice Gray then referred to, quote, an important modern case decided in England upholding the exclusive power of the Emperor of Austria as King of Hungary to emit legal tender notes. Can you believe it? One can only marvel at the hubris of the justices daring to interpret the Constitution according to the prerogatives of a European emperor. To be sure, this important modern case, or any other from foreign lands, has no bearing on what the Constitution means. But, viewed in context, its subject matter does expose Juilliard's ultimate bankruptcy and even viciousness. End quote from Edwin Vieira. Now, I would like to turn to page... Ooh, let's make it 663 with regards to Justice Fields' dissent. Now, Justice Fields had a lot to say, but we're going to just focus at page 663 here on where he turns to the majority's argument that Congress has some, quote, inherent sovereign power, end quote, 
to emit legal tender paper currency, okay? which he says fully carried out, this is now Edwin Vieira, would change the whole nature of our Constitution and break down the barriers which separate a government of limited from one of unlimited powers. Here's what Field said. Quote, the power to commit violence, perpetrate injustice, take private property by force without compensation to the owner, and compel the receipt of promises to pay in place of money, may be exercised, as it often has been, by irresponsible authority. But it cannot be considered as belonging to a government founded upon law. There is no such thing as a power of inherent sovereignty in the government of the United States. It is a government of delegated powers, supreme within its prescribed sphere, but powerless out of it. In this country, sovereignty resides in the people, and Congress can exercise no power which they have not, by their constitution, entrusted to it. All else is withheld. End quote. Justice Field. Ah, but he was only one. And a Democrat. Okay. Well, I hate to accuse the Supreme Court of making decisions based upon political considerations only, but isn't it odd how they overturned a hundred plus years of interpretation and they did it along party lines? Eight Republican to one Democrat. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy. You're listening to Datum Line. Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 11. Well, why did early Americans and their federal judges understand the principles that were laid out in the Constitution? Why were officials willingly humble before their constituents and willing to obey the oath that they took before God as faithful servants of we the people, while later generations of officials and the public have been groping like blind men at midnight, unable to see. Well, may I suggest that Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10 has a basic answer to that. That is that the fear of the Lord, that being the high respect for, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom is not something that's very common today. Let's boil all of this down to its relevant political essentials, remembering that the predominant spiritual or religious tenets of a society would establish the prevailing system of political economy. Government, which is an artificial person, is created by natural persons, called people, who must logically precede government in the order of creation. God, in the overall order of creation, preceded covenant Israelite man, whose obedience is owed to God in consequence of those unalienable rights we received from God. Our government did not create our founding fathers or us. It was the other way around, and it certainly didn't create God, although it has supplanted him as the only lawgiver to be recognized by most Americans today, many of whom even profess to be Christians. Our Anglo-American Christian forefathers who created this government did so for a specific purpose, to protect their rights and those of their offspring from the unlawful depredation of others, even if those others should worm their way into government as self-serving tyrants. Sovereignty resides with the Creator, and that's God. Then man, 
then agencies such as Congress created by man. Authority, to whatever extent the sovereign chooses to relinquish and delegate to his inferior creation, flows from the sovereign to his subordinate, first from God to man, then, in our case, from we the people to Congress, while retaining all authority not delegated to this inferior entity. Such was the noble experiment, as America's unique political system was called, by our European kinsmen. But power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So our constitutional government did not last very long. You see, it takes a level of integrity far beyond the inherent sinful nature of man to avoid the endless stream of temptations confronting a new nation founded upon the principles of limited government, as outlined by our Savior in Mark chapter 10, verse 44, when he said, Whoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. As with any manner of sin, it was the first step into the arena of intangible credit that exacted its terrible price. For it was followed by another and yet another, pulling us into the abyss of so-called paper money, issued first by the state of Massachusetts around 1690, later by state chartered banks, and with our federal Congress finally brushing its constitutional limitations aside in 1862 with legal tender United States notes, from which there has been no resuscitation. In this realm of moral distinction, man is a very slow student. Well, this is our music. This is the end of this segment and this installment. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy. I hope this has been of interest to you. Thank you, and have a good day. to smell some funky little things going on? Let me share this story with you. It's not so much a story. It's something I wrote years ago. Read your history, people. Stock markets collapse on Friday. Bank seizures, closures, holidays take place after business hours on Friday. Do currencies or governments also collapse on Friday? <laughs> Tomorrow's Friday. Will the end come on this Friday, or will the inevitable collapse hold off for a while? The next round of the worst financial crisis in a hundred years is coming, people, and the government is out to make you and I pay for it. And will your savings survive a global banking wipeout? What happens when the U.S. sees hyperinflation? What if taxes soar not only for the rich? Can you survive the stock market tanks? Well, between a stock market wipeout, waves of bank failures, soaring government spending that will lead to hyperinflation and the destruction of the dollar's value, isn't it time that you prepare for the uncertainty which lies ahead? Protect your money now or forever kiss it goodbye. My friends, I offer you over six decades' experience of hard asset ownership and knowledge. And I'm prepared to handle the smallest detail in the balanced protection of your portfolio. For as the future of uncertainty continues to blanket this nation of ours, 
I believe that I can offer you the privacy, safety, security, and possibly some profitability which you deserve. And so I invite you to visit SierraMondrePreciousMetals.com for further information regarding protecting your wealth. Or call me, Jeffrey Bennett, at 602-799-8214. Or by email at KettleMoraineLTD at Cox.net for a private consultation. Once again, our phone number is 602-799-8214. It's almost Friday. Are you one of the millions of people who feel like there is a dark cloud hanging over their heads whenever they're using pharmaceutical drugs? For some, the short-term relief can turn into an opioid addiction nightmare. Have you ever wondered why CBD oil is a billion-dollar industry? It's because it works better than opioids and is actually healthy for you. However, CBD oil is stripped of all other helpful compounds found in the hemp plants. According to neuroscientists, the whole hemp plant, otherwise known as hemp paste, is even more effective than the chemically processed CBD oil. Are you ready to take back your health? You can try hemp paste by going to rbnhemppaste.com. I'm so excited to have you as part of the Wild Pastures family, and we look forward to bringing you the pastures meats that you and your family will love. Now, we started Wild Pastures because so many of my clients would tell me they just couldn't find high-quality pastures meats, and even when they did, it was so expensive that they couldn't afford to eat it regularly. Now, I'm not talking about the bottom-of-the-barrel healthy meats that have claims like natural or free-range or even cage-free, terms that were actually created by the industrial food industry to make us feel all warm and fuzzy about buying their low-quality products. I'm talking about truly nourishing pasture-raised meats, the kind that you'll never really find in a grocery store. Our farmers are doing things beyond organic. Our beef is 100% grass-fed and grass-finished and raised on pastures free from chemicals and other pesticides. Our chickens are 100% pasture-raised, where they get their natural diet of grass and forage and insects. We will never settle for free range, which is actually one of the most deceptive terms in the chicken industry. In fact, less than 0.1% of the chicken consumed in the United States is truly pasture-raised in the way that ours is. And our pork is 100% pasture-raised as well. So if you care about where your food comes from, then you've definitely made it to the right place. As a Wild Pastures member, you'll be supporting the most highly principled farmers in America and getting the most nutrient-dense, nourishing, and sustainable meats in the world. I'm confident you'll love being part of our mission at Wild Pastures, and you will really love the delicious, nourishing meats that we're going to deliver straight to your door. Visit republicbroadcasting.org and click the Wild Pastures banner ad. Secure a shipment today. Beef, poultry, and pork. Raised the way nature intended. Tahibo Tea Club's original Pure Pouty Arco Super Tea comes from the only tree in the world that fungus does not grow on. As a result, it naturally has antifungal, anti-infection, antiviral, antibacterial, anti-inflammation, and anti-parasite properties. So the tea is great for healthy people because it helps build the immune system, and it can truly be miraculous for someone fighting a potentially life-threatening disease due to an infection, diabetes, or cancer. 
The tea is also organic and naturally caffeine-free. A one-pound package of tea is $49.95, which includes shipping. To order, please visit drinksupertea.com. The first word is drink, spelled D-R-I-N-K, then the word super, then the word tea. The complete website is drinksupertea.com. Or call us at 818-965-9113, Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. California time. That's 818-965-9113, drinksupertea.com. My name is John, the founder of Blackout Coffee, and I started uh, Blackout because I really love coffee. I've always loved coffee, and after traveling so much to Europe, South America, and trying so many different coffees that were so good, and uh, every time I came back, uh, to the U.S., I was so disappointed with the coffee, so I figured that I had to do something about it. The biggest difference is really is on the beans and the roasting process, how we roast it, and how fresh it is. The fresher the roast, the better the quality. Here I have like all, all of the coffee. It's roasted within one to two days prior to being shipped. So it literally gets to consumers' house within three to five days after being roasted. If you like coffee, you have to try ours. It's fresh roasted. It's one of the best beans that we can get. And you will definitely see the difference. Visit blackoutcoffee.com and use the coupon code REPUB10. That's REPUB10. Corporate media dominates the American opinion. Finding independent voices that counter this avalanche is becoming increasingly difficult. With the endless corruption running rampant throughout our government, independent voices are needed more than ever to battle the offensive against our freedoms and liberties. As a listener of RBN, no one understands this concept better than you. Now it's up to you to do your part. The time has come for you to take action and begin broadcasting the truth to hundreds or thousands of people every month. Sound impossible? Quite the contrary. With pointed slogans from LibertyStickers.com, you can reach countless sleeping Americans unaware that they live in a real-life wonderland. LibertyStickers.com has a huge inventory of political bumper stickers and messages that reflect the truth about our government, our politicians, and the future of America. With so many in stock, there's one perfect for you. Visit us today at LibertyStickers.com. Again, that's LibertyStickers.com. Do your part. Your voice is important. Let it be heard. Hey there, are you going to wait till the cows come home to get your new Ease-Off Drop and Lift? What in the world is an Ease-Off Drop and Lift? Our Ease-Off is a new tool to increase production for your meat processing company that will get that whole hog or half a beef on or off your rail with our remote control. That sounds great, but can I afford it? Sure, and the Ease-Off installs fast. The effortless operation will reduce fatigue, speed up your line, and increase profits. Okay, I'm convinced. Where can I get my Ease-Off? Go to EaseOff.com. That's E-A-Z-E-O-F-F.com. And hurry, because we're offering free shipping for a limited time. EaseOff.com. We make pigs fly. Cows, too. EaseOff, LLC, 417-932-6419. Homeowners, are you in foreclosure, expecting to be served with a foreclosure lawsuit, or suspect your lender has coerced you into an illegal mortgage transaction? 
A huge number of mortgages made in the last 10 years have legal issues and are possibly defective. State laws and the U.S. Supreme Court have upheld that defective mortgage documents are grounds for foreclosure defense and for counterclaims in favor of the homeowner. If your mortgage has been sold or assigned since closing the loan, it may be defective and you may be paying the wrong party and the lender may not have standing or the right to foreclose or collect payments under the law. If you would like to know if your mortgage is legal or not or know if you are paying the right party, we can help. Our initial consultations are free of charge. We are not attorneys. We are legal researchers and work closely with experienced lawyers who know how to help you find the evidence to help you keep your home. Call toll-free 1-855-2-KEEP-IT. That's 1-855-2-KEEP-IT today. Do you or someone you know suffer from chest pain, blood pressure, cholesterol, or irregular heartbeat? Are you looking for a more natural solution to overcome these health challenges? You hear the ads all the time. If this stuff's so good, why doesn't my doctor prescribe it? That's easy. Doctors are not trained in natural medicine. Extendivite Heart Tonic does want you to be as healthy as you can be. And it really works. Take Extendivite for six months and your doctor will say, I don't know what you're doing, but don't stop. It's working for you. Get the dependability of Extendivite. Just see how you feel in six months. A two-month supply of either capsules or liquid is only $69.95 plus shipping and handling. Call 1-877-928-8822. That's 1-877-928-8822. Or visit heartdrop.com. Extend your life with Extendovite. Hello, hello, hello from beautiful Colorado. My name is Samuel Jung Kay, and I am currently the lead Shilajee hunter and master herbalist for Colorado Shilajee Company. In this video series, I will be discussing what we believe is the greatest of all adaptogenic superfoods and the single greatest natural healing remedy gifted to us by Mother Earth. I think you too will become as excited by this incredible substance called Shilajee as we were and are after our discovery of this amazing gift right here in beautiful, colorful Colorado. You may already know Shilajit by other names. Shilajit, Momio, Momi, Mami, Mineral Pitch, Asphaltum, and others. Shiloji literally translates to destroyer of weakness and conqueror of mountains. Shiloji has been used for thousands of years and is considered as the highest valued cure-all of any earthly substance. Look for the gold mountain and medical symbol logo in banners on republicbroadcasting.org to watch the full video and see more information. Use code GORBN when ordering. That's G-O-R-B-N. The secret to aging like fine wine is in the vines. Ciroc grape seeds and skins contain high levels of flavonoids and resveratrol. Fermentation breaks these organic compounds down into smaller molecules, penetrating these therapeutic ingredients deeper into the skin, delivering faster and more effective results. Our handmade fermented skincare products are formulated with all natural ingredients and do not contain any phthalates or parabens. Similar products can cost as much as $180. At Natural Earth Medicine, we source our ingredients from local Arizona vineyards and cold process our oils to ensure that our customers receive the highest quality product in its purest form. Learn more at our website and try our fermented skincare products today. Visit naturalearthmedicine.com. That's naturalearthmedicine.com. 